0: Hello and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. Today we're delighted to bring you an interview with one of our best of young British novelists for Joanna Kavena. Kavena grew up in various parts of Britain and has also lived in the US, France, Germany, Scandinavia, and the Baltic States. She is the author of three novels, Inglorious, The Birth of Love, and Come to the Edge. She has also written one work of nonfiction, the Ice Museum. In 2008, she was awarded the Orange Prize for new writing. Tomorrow, which appears in Granta 123, is an excerpt from a forthcoming novel. Here, she talks to deputy editor Ella Ulfrey about her incurable wanderlust, genre-hopping, and why Nietzsche was wrong about the ordinary man.
1: Joanna, hi, it's really nice to have you here. Thank you. Um, I want to start off the conversation just talking about the different places you've lived because I know that you've sort of lived around Europe and in the United States and can you tell us a little bit about those journeys and how you got got to be in those places?
2: Yes, I suppose I grew up feeling slightly ill at ease in the places that I was living. I mean not particularly when I was a very small child but when I was, we lived in the countryside it was all very idyllic but then in my sort of teens my parents moved to this kind of Grimville, like an archetypal Grimville in the Midlands, which I won't even name, but um, and it seems unfair to sort of increase its woes, but and I suppose so I had that classic experience of feeling, anyway, as a teenager or illities, but you know, doubly so, sort of feeling that the environment was a bit odd and poignant in ways that I didn't necessarily want to explore at the time, and so I guess I had a massive wanderlust, huge wanderlust as soon as I could get out I basically went off. I went to New York and um, had a series of very sketchy jobs just doing anything for money, you know, bits of editing or anything that involved words and writing. And then, yeah, I ended up travelling through Europe that was a kind of series of travels that then I felt I had to justify by writing them into a book because otherwise they looked like psychosis so I thought they'd seem more reasonable if I then converted them into a worthy project so that became my first book um the ice museum but I went from I lived in Germany for about a year um in Munich and Berlin uh I lived in Estonia for a bit just after I suppose it had gained independence and started to get itself together and it was just at that point it had had a few years since independence and it was accelerating it kind of accelerating into being a kind of capitalist economy and there was a everybody had to be under 35 because there was a notion that if you were in power you couldn't be tainted with the past yeah. so it was very odd you know there were, the prime minister was about 25 and you know everybody running the stock exchange was and so it had a very interesting feel to it then I lived in Norway um, for quite some time, and then I just rampaged a bit, in a sort of unmeditated way across the far north. So um, Greenland and Iceland and Svalbard—I mean, anywhere I could sort of p- persuade someone to send me, basically, as a travel—you know—for a travel piece to get the money to go.
1: Is the wonderlust cured, or is it?
2: No, it's terrible. I mean, it's a sort of—actually, the place I've lived is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. I was totting it up the other day, and I worked out. I'd lived in forty six houses in fifteen years. I mean oh, it was wow. something that you didn't really want to admit it because oh. it sounded like a disease. but this sort of sense all the time of i suppose an urge to go somewhere
1: but even in your description of of that woeful, unnamed place where where you lived um with your family there there's immediately the sense that you you were looking in at least sort of you know understanding it in a way, even if that understanding led you to want to leave. And I, I wondered if, if that sort of, that wanderlust and that being able to go to different places, um, do you think you gain a certain empathy from that experience of being a, a stranger in a strange land? Does it help you see things in a different way?
2: Yeah, I think it, you realise that actually this sort of notion of novelty is a bit of a, a, a sort of pact um, with... I suppose, transients that you sort of think if you will never settle, you'll never sort of really face up to what it entails to be at home, to sort of settle down and to accept your environment is that, you know, your environment, your home, then you're kind of into this process of endless renovation of your circumstances. You're endlessly moving. And so it's a kind of, it's a, a quick fix, you know, in a sense, you're instantly um, regenerated. You, you go elsewhere and there's an immediate fascination. But there's always something. It's like that classic thing. You obviously can't escape the perennials. You know the yeah. the mortal condition. The the reasons why you write. The mm. the sort of sense of unease that you, all of us carry with us anyway.
1: I I like that phrase. That sort of um, renovation of circumstances. Because one of the things I was thinking, as we we're preparing for this interview, is that it's actually quite difficult to put you on one section of one book. Sh- one one bookshelf, if, I, if one had to categorize your books, because you have the the work of non-fiction, the sort of the travelogue, and then you have sort of Inglourious, which is sort of about contemporary malaise. And I know that you, you once um, had, I read an interview where you were a little bit horrified that it had been almost sold as chiclets in, in America yes. with complaints that she doesn't find a man and have there ever after. But you have that, and then The Birth of Love, which is sort of a really sort of structurally ambitious Um, kind of book that ranges in time and then come to the edge of sort of, you know, dark comedy and satire. And it seems to me that you're equally comfortable with that sort of huge canvas or with almost a, a kind of genre as you are with sort of a more contained life. So there is a kind of almost reinvention of yourself as a writer. Do you think that's correct? Or are you concerned maybe with the same themes throughout? Yes, I think there's things that
2: I always go back to and then there are different forms and it's interesting as you say that the forms sort of shift but I suppose I always feel this sense of the extraordinary within the ordinary that's something and I think I mean I joked about the, the much maligned Midlands town but in a sense I always feel there's you know this, this notion Nietzsche had it there's no point inquiring into the mind of an ordinary man or woman he said and I just think and that whole modernist idea that everybody else is a zombie is undead and you're the only person who thinks and feels and I always feel utterly against that i think the much more interesting and and compelling part of human experience is that everybody you know is the focal feeling center of their own lives and they have this vast array of unpredictable thoughts and so that always comes through in everything i I, I suppose i write that attempt to try to find the sort of epic within the apparently trivial or Mm. um unglamorous unedified but yes i suppose the books um I mean, actually, the odd thing is I wrote a few other books during that time which haven't yet been published, so that I always feel there's a sort of... I wonder, because the parameters of contemporary publishing are quite slender, you know, what you can get through, so I sometimes wonder if it would seem more logical if the other ones oh, had got through. There's a sort yes. of, but the ones that got through, I think because in all of those novels I was reacting to certain genres or sort of subgenres of the novel that in some way intrigued or inspired or compelled me so inglorious was the it was the outsider genre mm-hmm. not the chiclet novel it was <laughs> that you know genre of the the sort of deracinated confused person wandering around mm-hmm. a teeming city and being bewildered and with The Birth of Love it was that sort of postmodern, fragmented novel but I felt if you put birth into that then you actually drew it all together in this weird moment of apotheosis which is birth where past present and future come together mm. And Come to the Edge was the kind of apostolic genre. I wanted to totally obliterate that sort of traditional, I suppose, you know, Socrates with Plato, sort of, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, all those great men talking to their sort of acolytes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a insane woman talking to a reluctant acolyte instead.
1: And you have you have fun with it, but I, I read somewhere that you'd written Come to the Edge quite a while ago. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yes, I did. That came out as a sort of... Um, very um sudden i was quite surprised how that emerged i was just living in the Duddon valley in the lake district and it suddenly appeared one day Mm. quite fully formed yes and then um it was quite difficult to make the case for it because it was a comedy so within publishing it was it's difficult seen as a little bit of a you know a sort of risky thing to do because there was a sense that you know it's it's you create a sort of i mean i suppose publishers want writers to be like a tin of beans that you open the tin every time and it's the same so if you're sort of doing slightly different things they recoil a bit
1: I think that's what I meant about um, not being able to put you on an easy bookshelf but for us that's largely the joy your story in in the issue of the magazine is um, titled Tomorrow and I found it sort of a rather beautiful telling of small anxieties Um, and I felt I was sort of completely lost in in someone's head and, and their lives and um it's not necessarily bleak, but it did leave me feeling very sad. Each time I read it I felt a little bit sad. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> not, not depressed or wiped out but sad. And so it's you know, the tone is very different from, from um Come to the Edge. Um can you tell us a little bit about the this the book from which Tomorrow c- comes from?
2: Yes. Well I suppose it's a book about um, the lives of the non great, that was the idea. So, mm-hmm. you, again, you have this sort of, you know, the great compendia of significant lives that we have historically, um, sort of biographies of the important. And I wanted to have someone who goes and gets this archive. So, the opening is a woman going to the loft because she's being, hurt. her possessions are being thrown out of someone's house, they're being evicted from someone's house. And this sense of this poignant reaccumulation of these things, you go and get this stuff your own personal detritus but within it she realizes later um in the book that she's got this bizarre archive of the the sort of unsung of people who never really perhaps fulfilled their potential in a conventional sense but have had nonetheless rich experience so she kind of starts to compile this lives of the the non-great that's the whole sort of enterprise of that book but the bit you're talking about um that's very much in in fact I wanted her to be modestly happy at the end um but she's kind of it's all about these lighted rooms we see as we walk you know the sort of Edward Hopper Mm. idea that you walk along the street and you see all these people in their lighted rooms and you wonder what on earth they're doing and what they're thinking and um you get these sort of panoramas of the unknowable these people you'll never know and I just wanted to drop into someone's head and hear her as you say, her sort of anxieties and her hopes. Mm. And at the end, she's kind of sort of singing, I sort of thought. She was vaguely into a sort of lyrical moment of semi-rapture, but it's always edged around with, as you discern, a sort of darkness. Yes,
1: yes. Um, I wanted to go back to that, um, to to sort of travel writing, back to to your first book, or, or sort of what comes out of it. And... I, I wonder when you're writing a work of nonfiction, fiction is this uh, imagination involved because you have to remember those places and sort of find the words to describe them do you think that there's anything that you learn from from writing that kind of travelogue that influences your fiction?
2: Yes I think firstly that very detailed looking at place I mean sort mm-hmm. of trying to work out how to render place because the whole deal with the travelogue is the reader isn't with you physically, they're yeah. hoping you'll, you know, yeah. give them a sort of precy of what you've seen. And so you have a, a kind of compact with you and the reader that you'll express it as clearly and helpfully as you can. They'll yeah. get some very visual image of the place. So I suppose that. Um, and secondly, I suppose because of the travel book I wrote, it was all about this blurring of the real and the unreal. It was about a myth, Ultima Thule, the last yeah. land in the north, and no one ever quite knew where it was. And so people made fantasies around it and mm-hmm. placed these fantasies onto real real topographical locations and embellished reality all the time. And so I guess that's obviously what novelists do, they embellish reality. But to me, there's always a blurring. It's very difficult to fix the distinctions between objective reality and what we call unreality. So I think you feel in the novel that's more blatant, but I think in a travelogue that's still the case. You're still... because any expression of reality is very odd. It's it's flawed and blurred and peculiar.
1: Um, I I read in an interview you gave when you um won the Orange New Writers Award that you said you'd been a writer from the age of thirteen. So that got me wondering, what did you write then?
2: I al- I suppose I always wrote. So as soon as I could hold a pen and um, produce a sentence, I was writing. Thirteen. I probably said that because I meant it was then that I started trying to write novels, very nascent, Mm. um, usually abortive novels. And and I suppose I always wanted to write, but I had no idea how I'd ever persuade anyone to pay me to do it. (laughs) Did you know then that you could get paid for doing that? I sort of thought you had to have a proper job type writing job, like being a journalist or an academic. Uh I sort of thought the idea of just being a writer in a lofty writer's sort of study was inconceivable to me at the time. Who were you reading then? Oh god Um, at that age, 13 I suppose D.H. Lawrence was just that was just starting and Margaret Atwood, those sorts of people and then beginning I suppose Dickens um, I got very obsessed around that time with sci-fi I was reading quite a lot of sci-fi Asimov and Philip K. Dick and those sorts of people so I mean I think at that age you just pick at random from your parents bookshelf or from your school library
1: or just anything that you see and and were any of those books that sort of ended up influencing that that sort of 13 14 year old early writer did you did you want to write like Philip K Dick or or like Asimov or any of the others or did you feel very much that you'd have to make it up on your own
2: I think what you get from those writers and I think you really discern it because you're in some way untrammeled by convention is whether they're being honest with you I think at that age Mm. especially you really know when adults aren't being honest and there's something about authenticity and I think so someone like D.H. Lawrence often he's just wildly infuriating actually and you lose a certain amount of faith in him but he's always absolutely authentic and presenting an honest portrait of his own experience of reality and I think Philip K. Dick as well although he's taking you into these crazy universes there's a complete authenticity of purpose I think that was coming through.
1: That's really interesting i um reading your novel Inglourious, i I felt very much sort of throughout that the protagonist, even though she 's going through a really hard time that she felt that too much was owed to her, and there's an interesting exploration and in, come to the edge of sort of perceived inequalities um, but with both of those, I felt that you allowed an intimacy with the characters, so I felt I really understood them, but at the same time, it interested me that you don't as a writer or as the author pass judgment on them which is quite a difficult thing to do and and i wonder if you if that's something that you're really conscious of doing of showing us that kind of honest truth of the character which i think in both cases is quite a difficult one but not passing judgment yes i suppose that i was aware that all
2: those characters rose elaine and inglorious and the two in come to the edge the unnamed narrator and cassandra white um were in many ways ambiguous, that you weren't going to like them all the time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what happens when you become intimate with someone, actually. Mm -hmm. You, of course, don't adore them at every Mm -hmm. stage. And I think there's a funny notion of charm, again, which counteracts authenticity, this sort of idea that people are meant to be charming all the time and sort of woo people to like them. And I think that interferes with the sort of free expression of opinion and personality. Mm -hmm. I think Camus said that you can't have a proper discussion unless people are presenting you with their really true opinions of things. It gets very boring if everyone's trying to sort of hedge around. And so I suppose I try to do that. I just say, you know, this is the person and she's not, or he's not trying to sort of, you know, dress up as an appealing, delightful character, that they just are these mortal, at times foolish, active sort of dynamic humans, hopefully. Do you think that um, you'll write another book of nonfiction, another work of non Yes, I'd really like to. And I'm just thinking about somewhere to go to travel. So that's, that's something that's just emerging. But I think the travelogue is wonderful because it's very forgiving because it's first person. Again, mm-hmm. the reader accepts. And that's why you have all these interesting travel writers like Ian Sinclair or W.G. Sebald was a, a travel writer, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. because the genre allows you to... Um, be very free with what you do as long as you say this is my vantage point, I'm just off on this funny journey. And the reader, I think, kind of
1: gives you quite a lot of leeway with that. You'll be a very different traveller this time around, though. I mean, sort of, it'll be... um, I'll be even more (laughs) (laughs) world-weary. But I mean, also in in terms of of how that that writing happens after, you know, after having written these novels and and having that certain way of looking at the world, and it, it becomes... Well, I don't know, do you you think it it makes a difference at all?
2: Well, it's interesting when you write novels in the first person because Come to the Edge is narrated in the first person and a travelogue in the first person because in a travelogue, the reader expects you to be honestly yourself, even though, of course, you're slightly having to craft Mm. a continuous, coherent self. I mean, if you really reveal to them all your doubts and manias during a journey, they'd start to recoil. So you have to edit your own Mm. sort of Mm. character within that. but I think that's again it's just a totally different thing when when you write a first person narrator who is utterly not yourself yes. and you can really go wild with their voice mm-hmm. you just it's a bit like I suppose you know a totally
1: adopting a different voice for an entire duration of the book and it's
2: it's thrilling
1: um I, I like the range of books that you described reading as, as a young person do you still maintain that kind of, I don't know, freewheeling innocence in your choices as a reader now. Who do you read now?
2: Well, it's, I just read, really all sorts of people, I read this brilliant writer just recently, Sanath Banerjee, who's a, um, he's, I think he's based in Berlin, but he obviously hails originally from, well, one of his best books is about Calcutta, so I assume mm. he spent quite a lot of time there, and he's an amazing graphic novelist who writes this incredibly witty um, prose, and then he subverts himself further with his images. It's wonderful, so mm-hmm. I think he's brilliant. Um, Enrique Villa Matas, I think, is pretty amazing. He's and he's in that sort of Robert Bellagno kind of mm-hmm. field, but he's again these sort of I quite li- like sort of this very ironic style of writing, and and he's very into a sort of idea of personal realism that you've just got to sort of hang it all out and hope it's okay. You know, sort of really be as honest as you can. So those sorts of people, but yeah, I suppose mm-hmm. I do. I try to read variously and not merely sort of confine myself within mm. what you're sort of told to read at a given moment by you know the sort of media
1: I have a final question about sort of learning, learning to write and um, I, I wonder if you think that, um, what, do you think that one can be taught how to write or how have you taught yourself to be the writer you are now?
2: Um, yes that's a really interesting question because it's so much of the moment isn't it with mm. all the creative writing MAs and um, a whole culture of, of tuition in writing um, I think it depends a lot on the writer I mean for me I, I was very autodidactic through reading a lot and then an awful lot of trial and error writing a lot of stuff I threw away and still I throw away quite a lot um, but to me that's sort of how it's always been and I can't Really imagine doing it within a structure, within an educational structure, but that's partly because I was such a terrible, surly, intractable student. You know, I think it's partly my own response to that sort of environment. But I think for some people, it clearly supplies for the tutors, you know, a great way to carry on writing because they Mm -hmm. get another income and they enjoy talking to students. And clearly, for students, they get time to write, which is always crucial. They get this opportunity to write. So, if it works for them, then
1: great i think um your your books and and your characters or they they're concerned with with things that in the end throughout the different forms and ways you choose to tell those stories seem important and universal even as you're telling those small lives there's a way one can relate to them all quite serious do you enjoy the writing do you do you have fun is it is it fun it is in the end i go through um
2: a certain amount of I wouldn't call it agony because that's that awful thing about those writers who say it's so (laughs) agonizing writing books and you think no no it's it's agonizing you know sort of going down a mine you know it's obviously (laughs) fundamentally fun to write but I think there is a a series of awkward months where it's not coming together or I'm sort of jotting down ideas and sort of trying to get stuff in in a sort of reasonably coherent form and you there's only a certain amount of Suspense and discomfort about that because you don't know if it's going to come together at Mm. all so you think am I just wasting my time and then there is an incredibly thrilling and brilliant bit which is really why you go through that early bit where it just bizarrely works and in a way you can take years to get to that point sometimes Mm. with certain books and it just flies and it's at that point it's as if you're sort of I mean I heard Jez Butterworth talking about how he writes and he says you're seizing words from the air and I absolutely identify with that. It's completely like automatic writing as if you're you really are, you do subscribe to notions of Jungian, you know, archetypes and something that's coursing through Mm. you. It's wonderful and it's completely exhilarating and that's when you think I can't wait to write my next book and then you read it and you're demoralised because it's so different (laughs) from what you were hoping there's a sort of lapse from Eden to reality and then you edit it which is pain but there is this wonderful apex, I think, in it, yes.
1: Then you pass it on to your readers and pass on the the, the, the joy that they get from, you know, as, as a reader, from, from learning something or identifying with something as well. So it goes beyond that. Too. Well, that's the
2: weird thing about writing, which I still find hard to get used to, which is that you write this thing in this bizarre state in your room on your own, and occasionally it does genuinely resonate with people, and that's the most astonishing, extraordinary thing that you feel that something has been communicated. It is always exciting, actually.
1: Joanne, it's such a pleasure to have you on our list, and thank you very much for coming to talk to us. Thank Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Granta podcast, available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, Granta.com slash subscribe.